Let's begin with a word of prayer. Let's sing on. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for allowing us to delve into your word and look at the major covenant that you make with Adam and Eve at the end of the garden and, and also with Abraham and how you work your redemption throughout history and bringing us all together and bringing us to this place and saving people that are from every nation, tribe, and tongue and bringing us to your Son. And so we thank you for that and pray that we would be encouraged by this study today. In your Son's name we ask. Amen. So, two weeks ago we ended and talked about the fall and all the things that the condition that Adam left us in brought with our guilt, with our shame and corruption. And so today we're going to briefly talk about that covenant of grace, the thing that God does right after the fall, and how that pretty much opens up the rest of the Bible for us. And so we'll briefly talk about that and then majorly focus on the, Ab- the covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Um, so God's judgment comes at the end of Genesis 3, and he brings this unbearable curse to bear on the world. But as he punishes Adam and Eve, he also give, gives them that glimmer of hope uh, when the serpent deceives Adam and Eve and they make this alliance, God has to come in and break that up. God has to come in and he says that he's going to put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between the serpent's offspring and her offspring, and that he's going to bruise the head of that snake, the devil, and but his heel will also be bruised. So to the serpent, he makes this really awful, terrifying threat, but to Adam and Eve, he gives this beautiful promise, and he gives this, these words of life, this hope that he has, which is pretty much the foundation for the entire Bible. So we talked about that Adam and Eve had this covenant of works by which that they were hoping to obtain glory, the new heavens and new earth, but that is immediately broken and a curse comes about. And so God initiates what we are calling the covenant of grace, the, the gospel promise, which is pretty much the foundation for the rest of the Bible. So God begins to drop this hint, and he doesn't reveal the gospel all at once. He doesn't say exactly what's going to happen, but it's kind of like my amazing trees here. It's kind of like an acorn where he, he puts this acorn in Genesis 3.15 and it slowly begins to develop into this amazing tree, this giant oak tree of the, that starts filling out more and more. So as we march through the Bible, God is adding more limbs. He's adding more fruit and all these different things to that one story. And he's progressively revealing to us what Christ is going to come and do. And that sets the groundwork for everything. Um, So God, instead of pouring out his wrath on Adam and Eve like they deserved, he instantly just showers them with more grace. He shows how compassionate he is and how loving he is by instantly bringing the promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. And he starts, even there, dropping hints about how he's going to redeem us, that in Genesis 3.21, is the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Now this detail is very important because 
after the fall, Adam and Eve and their nakedness all, all of a sudden become shame to them. It's something that's shameful because they no longer are innocent. They no longer could even, their guilt was even in their bodies. And they just felt that even before God's presence. And so they tried to make those clothes. Remember what they tried to make? They made the, the fig leaves, right. And they sewed together those fig leaves and they're trying to do what they can to cover up all the, what they did. And God comes on the scene. It's like the kid with the, covered the chocolate all over his face. And they're just like trying to like cover themselves up. And God instantly knows what they did, but he's trying to get them to confess. He's trying to bring forth that confession so his promise and forgiveness can start to work. And God then takes these animals and he kills these animals and he clothes them with these proper covering and these proper clothes. And that teaches us two really important things that. God first has to cover our guilt and shame and we can't do it. We can't do that for ourselves. Like We're tr- always trying to anxiously please God with our own fig leaves. We're constantly trying to anxiously cover ourselves with those fig leaves, but this is going to have to be something that God does. And He provides it through an animal that had to be sacrificed. It had to be sacrificed to cover their guilt and their shame. And this is going to be something that we're going to see in the next couple of weeks is that sacrifices are going to be essential to how God is temporarily dealing with sin until He sends His Son. So these animals are constantly going to be at the forefront of sacrifice that are temporarily dealing with man's guilt. Um, and then God promises that He's going to send Adam... 2.0. So he's going to be sending a second Adam as we read in, in the 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5 that Christ is called the second Adam because he's going to have to do what Adam and Eve failed to do in the covenant of works. And God is showing that he's giving his undeserved love to them. That he does, they don't longer deserve it and they've broken that, that covenant and they've broken that relationship, but despite all of that, despite all their sin and what they're trying to say in their rebellion, God instantly brings this promise that the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. So that is pretty much foundational for very much the whole Bible. So as we go through the different characters or when you're even you're reading at home, the constant thing throughout the Old Testament is that they're someone new comes on the scene, whether it's Noah, whether it's Abel or Cain or Abraham or David, and everyone's saying, is this the seed? Is this the seed of the woman? Or is this the seed of the serpent? And that's the constant thing in the background is like, is this the one who's going to redeem Israel? Is this the one who's going to save us from our sins? Um, And the spiritual warfare is going to be going on the entire Bible. So you have the covenant of grace with the seed of the woman and it's going to be the serpent constantly popping up his head where we least expect it. And that battle is just throughout all of history and is going to be going on every single passage that we look at. Um, But all the people that we look at, whether it's 
Abel or Noah or Abraham, Moses or David or even King Solomon, these people who seem like good candidates, but they all fall short in one way or another. None of these great men are able to bring about the salvation um, because they all have something in common. They all were born of Adam. They're all tainted by that sin that we talked about last week and that corruption is still on them. So even though that they, they're great God, godly people and people of God and they're in this lineage, they can't deal with sin of other people because they have to deal with their own sin and they need somebody else to save them. And so God is saying that I'm going to provide two things in this covenant of grace. There's going to be two things that we need for the Savior to accomplish. And the first thing is that we're going to have to have a sacrifice, like we said. We're going to have someone to deal with the guilt. And then, but we also have to have a second thing. We have to have someone who's obedient just as Adam should have been. So we also need obedience. Perfect obedience. And those are the two things that really highlight what we're looking for in, throughout the Bible, is that someone has to do the covenant of works on our behalf, which is what, what grace actually is. Grace is God giving us that undeserved favor because somebody has fulfilled the law and fulfilled obedience in our place, but then also has taken on our sin. So that's what is going to be needed to go back into God's presence, to go back into that courtroom and not hear the guilty verdict like Adam and Eve did that separated them and that sent them to east of Eden where the curse is. Um, God makes that promise right there in Genesis 3.15, the first echo of the Gospel. And He sends specifically His Son, Jesus Christ, to live among us and to be that second Adam. And that's, that's very much the foundation, as we were saying, for everything that we're going to see. Everything that we're going to see throughout the whole Bible, whether it's, as we talk about today, with the Abrahamic Covenant, or even in the Mosaic Covenant, or even with King David. Those things are all the pictures of how Christ is going to do that for us. So, let's quickly just dive into the next scene in this whole episode with the Abrahamic Covenant. If you want to turn to Genesis 12, I'm just dropping everything. It's kind of like those scenes in a movie where the beginning of Genesis is this fast-paced incident where he's just naming off all these names, naming off all these incidents, and it's all that is speeding up to this account in Genesis 12. And then the whole thing, the camera slows down to Abraham. So you have all these people just being shot off, all these genealogies, all these things are just setting up the picture, and then everything just slows down just as it gets to Abraham, who's very much central, a central figure to the whole Bible. And the camera slows down and it focuses in on God bringing Abraham out 
of, of this land and calling him to himself. So we read in, in Genesis 12, in 1 through 3, it says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to this land that I will show you. So he's taking this man, Abram, later named Abraham, and he's taking him up out of this land. And he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. But in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you had this interesting scene where the whole world is being populated and filled with people who are, who are forgetting the Lord, who are forgetting this covenant of grace, and they are worshiping other gods. And they don't keep the faith that Adam and Eve was handing, handed down to them. They don't keep the promise, and they don't look with faith to this coming Savior. And so out of this pagan land, God chooses Abraham, or Abram, and he makes these specific promises. Um, and if you look at the passage, who is the person who's promising to act in this, specifically? Who's the one who's saying he's going to do something? God. So he's saying, he's not saying to Abraham, or Abram, if you do X, I will do Y. He's saying, I will, I will, I will. From the beginning to the end, he's saying that he's just taking Abraham out of this land full of idols, and probably Abraham was an idolater. He probably was worshiping what his ancestors were all worshiping. But God's call comes to him, and he makes these promises to him. And this isn't something like a conditional promise like we saw at the beginning with the covenant of works, but this is a unilateral, unconditional thing that God himself promises. And that becomes clear to us in Genesis 15 um, with this ratification of the ceremony and this covenant that God promises in verse 1 of chapter 15, if you want to turn there, he says that after these things, he tells him that fear not, Abraham, or Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. And this reward is God's unilateral promise to Abram, which he had already promised in chapter 12. And it's interesting that what that promise actually is. He says that he will that in him, and that his, his house and his nation will come from Abraham in chapter 12. That he's going to bless all the nations of the earth, but Abraham comes to God and he says, well, I mean, you know, Lord, that I don't have any children, right? He's like, I'm pretty old, and my wife is pretty old. We might as well be dead. Like, our bodies are beyond the capacity to have children. And he has no offspring, he doesn't have a seed that could actually carry on that promise. And he's like, Lord, what are you going to do? I'm old and childless. He says, Lord God, the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, and you have given me no offspring. 
In other words, he's saying, I have to adopt this servant in my house in order to continue my heritage, my line. And how am I going to become this great nation if I'm childless? And the Lord responds in verse 4. He says, says, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And the next thing that the Lord does is really, really interesting because he makes this promise and Abraham is struggling to believe. He's coming out of this foreign land. He's given all these kind of weird promises and he doesn't know what to do with it. And he becomes anxious. Um, he's like, this sounds way too good to be true. Like, how is this even going to be happen? He's looking around at his circumstances and it doesn't make any sense. The promise that God gives to him doesn't make any sense. And so he goes out and, he, and the Lord does something interesting and he says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he says, so shall your offspring be. God goes out and he says, look at the world that I've created. He says, if I'm able to create all these innumerable stars and I created the world and created everything in it, why is it impossible for me to do this thing? Like just as all you see all those stars out in the earth, or in the heavens, right above the earth, that is going to be the number of children that you are going to have. And so he makes that point to him that even though it seems impossible and his body is as good as dead, that God is pleased and he loves to do those miraculous things. He wants to take this person who he's calling out and he's going to bless the whole world through it. Uh, and so this problem still is going to be in Abraham's mind. He, he's going to be living by sight. And he's struggling to live by faith in this promise. And he considers what's before him and he's looking out at the stars. And the natural thing that we would expect Abraham to do would just be like, you know, that, that's impossible. Like It's a biological impossibility. But God goes out and keeps condescending towards him. And he keeps like, he knows his weakness. He knows his frailty. And he gives him these, this miraculous picture of the stars and says, this is what it's going to be like. And Abraham, and we read in verse 6, that he believed the Lord and, he, and the Lord counts it to him as righteousness. So God gives this promise and Abraham believes after seeing this, mar- this sign of that promise. He trusts in the Lord and all he has to go on is his, uh, his faith in, the, in what God promises. And because of that, we read, we read later on that that's how he was justified before God. That it's through faith in this promise that he gives, this covenant of grace is being established. But the Lord's not finished with this yet. He, he knows that, this, that, that his, his promises need to actually land. He, God is not only going to show him this very thing, but he's going to make this blood oath. He's going to make this covenant that... Abraham would understand in his own terms. 
So God is doing this miraculous thing, but God is constantly condescending to where we are and where our weakness is to show how far his, his love is for us. Um, so God makes this promise, not only that he's going to have this offspring, but in verse 8, we see that he also offers this land, that he's going to offer this land, and Abraham asks, how am I going to possess this? How am I going to possess this land and have this offspring? And God, in his compassion, he just comes down further and he starts saying, I'm going to seal this with a guarantee. I'm going to seal it with an oath that you're going to understand. So he says, you want to guarantee Abraham? He says, go and get these three-year-old heifers, these goats, and these ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Well, that does it. I mean, like, <laughs> I'm done. I believe. You know, no, that doesn't make much sense to us. Um, but in this time period, this kind of ritual would have been as familiar as a wedding ceremony to us today. That in Abraham's day, they knew that he was making this covenant ceremony and this oath. And this was a very popular procedure between two kings or two different parties where they would make this treaty and a covenant that had these different stipulations or obligations and they would take this blood oath to ratify what the promise was. To ratify what it would look like if a party either failed to keep that promise or what they would do to, to what, or what they would have to do to keep the promise. So tip, typically, you would have all these animals being killed and they would be split apart and they would kind of they would go through this ceremony either together, walking through those halves, or depending on what kind of covenant it was, the lesser king, what they would say as a vassal, if you want to think of like in medieval Europe, you'd have like a king and a vassal, servant. So the vassal would go through it after he would make these promises not to rebel against his Lord and he would make all these, swear all these oaths. And they would take this oath and walk between the animals to have this ritual to keep this covenant. And this was a sacred oath. And this was a sacred thing that was basically saying if either of the parties fails to keep their promise, we're going to be like those animals. We're going to be torn apart like those animals and they're walking through this valley of the shadow of death. And they're saying this is, like, this is how serious it is you're going to receive all these curses upon your head and you're going to become just like that severed animal if the covenant is broken. So this, is, this makes sense in his world. This makes sense in Abraham's world, even though it's kind of really bizarre to us. Um, but what's so amazing about this particular covenant is that the Lord, who's the God of the earth, who's the God of the universe, is actually the one who takes upon himself the obligations. He's the one who says, I'm going to do this, just kind of as we read before, where he says, I will, I will, I will. God appears and he's symbolized by this torch and this fire pot. Um, if you think of like later on in, in, the, in the book of Exodus, God is marching through the wilderness and he's represented by this flaming 
pillar of fire and the cloud. This is very similar to what's happening here. God is saying he's representing himself in this fire pot and this pat, torching pat, uh, and this flaming torch, and he passes by himself between these animal halves. And what's even more interesting is that Abraham is asleep. So he's like, you're not going to do this. In fact, I'm going to put you to sleep and let you watch me act. And that's how God is saying, this is all on me. This is all on what I'm going to do. What I'm going to do. And he takes this blood oath by himself to show us once again what it's going to take to fulfill the promises. So God's blessing to the nations, God giving this promised land, and all bringing the seed of prom- the offspring is something that God is going to do by himself. Abraham is, might as well be dead in his body, and God puts him to sleep, and he's like, just watch me act. You know, you know, be still and know that I'm God, and watch me act. And we know from later on that in, this, in the Scriptures that God actually has to be torn apart to fulfill this promise. Like He's going to be on Golgotha, on the cross, and He's going to be torn apart for us to keep that promise. And so we see those two things coming up again, that the obedience that God demands, God is going to give. But then He's also going to become that sacrifice. He's also going to be the, the things we need to bring us back into His presence where the tree of life is. Um, so really quickly, there's these two kind of stages of how God fulfill the, fulfills this promise in Genesis 15. There's two, kind, there's two different layers that we're going to mention like how this comes about. So the first way that He does that is with the nation of Israel. With, so the patriarchs represent Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has his 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And God, throughout Genesis, is constantly renewing this one covenant promise. We see in, in Genesis 26 and 28 that he renews that promise with Isaac and Jacob. And then as the story progresses, things kind of pick up speed again. And all the descendants of Abraham end up in Egypt. They end up there and they start multiplying and increasing greatly. And we start seeing that promise being fulfilled. And they become so numerous that as we're told, that the ruler of Egypt, the Pharaoh, he starts getting scared and he starts afflicting them. And they're put in slavery for 400 years as God had even foretold in Genesis 15. Uh, But Moses reminds Israel in Deuteronomy that their number is the fulfillment of what God had promised. He says that the Lord your God has multiplied you and today you are as numerous as the stars of heaven. So God is fulfilling this promise with this first stage of the the act of, of the play of what's going on through this specific nation of Israel. And 
he's constantly reminding them of this throughout the entire Old Testament, that they're as many as the sand by the sea. They're, they're as many as the stars of heaven. Um, and then he also fulfills the promise to have a land that under the leadership of Joshua, there Israel enters into the promised land of Canaan and they take possession of it. And he tells Joshua that this is the fulfillment of that promise again. That the Lord God gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side as he had sworn to their fathers. And not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to Israel had failed. They all came to pass. So just as God had fulfilled his promise to Abraham with his offspring, he also fulfills it with the land. But there's also another layer, another tier of what's happening here in how he's fulfilling not only the the promise of an offspring, the seed, but also in how he's bringing about something even more marvelous than a plot of land in Palestine. But he's speaking about the new heavens and new earth. And we see that in Christ's person and work, that in the fullness of time, Paul calls Jesus in Galatians 3 the offspring of Abraham. He came into the world to do what God gave him to do, this work of obedience that we saw at the beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden, and that was pictured in Genesis 15. He gave him this work to do, but that also he was going to suffer, that he was going to be torn apart as those animal halves were and live the perfect life in our place and die as the guilt offering by becoming a curse of sin for us. And so God is slowly unveiling and picturing all these things to show us what Christ came to do to redeem us from our sin and guilt and corruption and bring us to the eternal life and glory that Adam that was, that was held out for Adam. So on the cross, his flesh was torn and his blood was shed, suffering that judgment that we deserved because he wanted to f- show by, by that very thing that he was fulfilling what was promised in Genesis 15. That these promises had to be fulfilled in this very way. And we even read that that's how Paul applies the Abrahamic covenant to us. So this is the foundation for the very gospel itself. He says that that those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, as the scripture foreseeing that God would justify even the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying that in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So, God's plan all along was to bless the people of the world through this one promise that coming back into God's presence and receiving the verdict that Adam failed to receive that we would be in his presence forever that is that's what's given to us in Jesus that's what's given to us in this promise um 
And briefly, I just want to talk about like there's what are the main things that we can take away from understanding what the Abrahamic covenant is? What are the main things that we can see why this doctrine why is so important for our lives? Um, well, first, it shows us that God, you know, is, God, is a God of promise. It reveals to us how He's acting throughout all of history and how He's acting throughout the whole Bible, creating the foundation of what He's going to do in His Son. That He's showing us His nature by showing us this, these promises showing us these very things that He's going all over the world to bring us to Himself. That He's moving heaven and earth to show His condescending love for us. And I think this is really, you know, really important for us as Christians because we are in that same position as Abraham. That we're living by faith and not by sight. We're still looking towards these specific promises uh, the author of Hebrews says that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to receive an inheritance. And as he went out, he didn't know he were, where he was going. But by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, with heirs with him of the same promise. But he was looking toward a city that has foundations and whose builder and designer is God. You know, all these people died in faith, not having received that promise, but having seen that from afar, they greeted them, and they received the things that were promised to them. And having acknowledged that they were just strangers and exiles in this earth. And for people who speak this in this way are seeking this homeland that God is promising and holding out to us. And I think that's really significant because we are offered that same exact thing. We're going through the wilderness of this age. We're filled with all our these anxieties that we talked about two weeks ago. We're filled with the fear of death. We're filled with discouragement that come at us at every side. We're like Israel in the wilderness, you know, wondering if God has just let us out here to die. And God shows his such condescending love to us by making these promises, by constantly using these very things that we would understand, like Abraham. He gives us his word and he gives us the Lord's Supper. He gives us baptism. He gives us the church. All of these things to show that his promises are sure and then they're not going to fail. Um, we are like Abraham, just like, God gives those promises and we're like, we're curving in on ourselves and we're just like, you know that I'm dead, right? You know, like, you know that I might as well be good as dead. And you look around us and we don't see those realities. We don't see all the things that God has promised. But God just condescends even further. He's like, come out and look at the stars. Come out and look at what I'm doing in your life. Abraham didn't recognize what was happening, but God slowly led him to this promised land. He slowly gave him these, this offspring. God is a God of promise, but He also goes out of His way to give us these signs of His goodness to us. That His promises are yes and amen. And that His love is just never failing. And even though the first thing we do 
is doubt and doubt God's promises. God doesn't just lash out at us. He doesn't respond in anger, but He gives us His Word again and again that He will remember our sins no more and that He's going to go march Himself to the cross. Even though it might have taken thousands of years to fulfill that promise, it's not a long time for God. Um, He's going to take our guilt and He's going to be torn apart and torn asunder. And He's also going to obey because He wants us back into His presence. Um, secondly, I think that this really just highlights and should assure us that Christ is that offspring of Abraham, that Christ fulfilled these things that were promised thousands of years beforehand. And this, this isn't something that we could just make up. This isn't something that we could just cleverly arrange. But this was thousands of years of him arranging all of history in his providence to bring about something very specific. Like these things are like, it would be impossible for us to orchestrate these things. Um, But God made this blood oath and this covenant all the way back in Genesis 15. and And we see Christ becoming that curse for the law for us. Christ taking these things and he saying, I will do this. I will, I will, I will. And this is just how far the love of God is going for us. Like what He's going to do to redeem us from that curse of the law. And the primary purpose of all these things is to bring us back as His creatures into His presence so that we can have joy so we can have we no longer serve God under this curse of this covenant of works where we're constantly fearful whether or not we're going to make it but we constantly have to hear that promise that God is the one who's going to fulfill this he's going to take it on his shoulders and he puts us to sleep while he does it he's like while you guys were dead that's the right time that Christ died for us that's the time that he came for us um And all of that is so that we can, for the specific purpose of entering into that holy presence of God, as the author of the Hebrews says, that because of this, we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain of his flesh. Christ was torn apart so that we could one day be in his presence in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, Third, I think that this also shows us how God's grace comes to the nations. That this is something that He's not just giving to the people of Israel that we talked about in that first layer of how God fulfills things, but this was going to bless the nations. That this is a gospel for every nation, tribe, and tongue. And this is what's come to pass. Um... I think we think about today, if we look at the news, there's so many things that divide us. There's so many things that divide people. Not just race, but you know, our music and our tastes and our politics, where we live, what nation we're in, all these things divide us into tribes. Whether it's our cultural identities or consumer preferences or our political affiliations, 
all those things that divide us and hold us back because we're really you know, afraid that our neighbor is going to take away our way of life, that, that fear that so grips us, God in His promise is coming and saying, I am turning all these ragtag people from all these nations who are filled with that fear, who are filled with that anxiety, and I'm going to bless them through Christ. Uh, and nothing but the Gospel can do that. And that's what the, that's what the whole Bible is bringing about. That's what the whole of Scripture is showing of God blessing the whole nations, all the nations of the earth and bringing them together in a way that's setting aside all those fears so that we could become a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation that who are a people of God's own possession. And, you know, this is what the church is all about. This is what the communion of saints is all about. That's what God is doing with the gospel. That is the foundation for everything that we say and do. All those other things, all our cultural preferences, like what movies we like, what music we like, those are great, but what unites us is the gospel. What unites us as a church and our mission and everything that we're saying and doing is the gospel. And that alone is what, what God is saying He's going to do. He because he's the one doing it, because he's the one fulfilling these promises, it's only based on him. It's not based on us and all the things that we're trying to do, all these different preferences, but it's based upon what he has done for us in Christ. Um, and so that was just like a brief overview of what the Abrahamic covenant is about. And... Hopefully that gives us a bigger picture. Like this is like the, the the very foundation for the entire Bible. This is the foundation for everything that we see with Christ's coming and what He's going to do. Um, and next week, hopefully, Lord willing, we'll be talking about how God unpacks that even more progressively, even a bigger picture in the Mosaic Covenant, and how God shows more and more what Christ is going to come to do through the temple, through the sacrifices, and how we get all these rich images of what Christ did on the cross from that covenant. Um, any other, any questions or thoughts? I know it's a kind of a water hose, quick blitz through the Abrahamic covenant. No? Nothing? All right. Well, let's end in a word of prayer then. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for Your promises to us and that You are a God of promise and that even though we are constantly looking around us and, and find that what You say in Your Word is too good to be true, that You don't react like we would, that You just constantly have compassion on us and You condescend to us, and You show us the stars of the heavens, and You give us Your covenant promises to show us how far You're going to go to fulfill Your Word. And even though it's easy to look even 2,000 years ago at Christ's coming and we think it might be impossible for You to come again and make everything right, we're led to 
our strength and our, our assurance being strengthened in your promise because of what you've done to Abraham, because of what you've accomplished through your son. So we pray, Lord, that as we go worship, that you would prepare us for meeting with you, that we're actually entering in to your holy presence through the work of your son. And we don't have to fear, but we can have confidence and assurance and joy at what you've done. In your son's name we pray. Amen.